up? Today we have special guest Andrew Oldasso, the man behind Miami Creation Myth. Welcome to Take It Easy. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. The work that you do is so interesting because it's not only funny, but it's also like definitely satirical and incredibly relatable. And so it creates a sense of common identity. And yet, as someone belonging to that identity, you also feel comfortable shitting on our own identity, which is nice. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. So Miami Creation Myth started off as a short story that I wrote on the way to Denver, Colorado in 2017 for my buddy's bachelor party. And the idea was that all these great civilizations across time, whether it's the Norse or the Egyptians or the Han Chinese or literally any civilization ever had their own mythic cycle, which is their own gods, their own goddesses, their own heroes, legends, etc. And I thought it would be a good idea, since Miami is so culturally unique in the world, for the city to have its own mythic cycle, its own gods and goddesses. So mm. that's what I created, which is essentially like a parallel universe composed only of Miami-Dade County. So at the Broward County border, there's a giant chasm and no one knows what's on the other side. Might be for Lauderdale. <laughs> we'll find out. Is this an alternate world or like? Yeah, <laughs> it sounds kinda, really it's, kinda, it's based on Miami, but it's definitely not. <laughs> I mean, it's that that perspective of like, oh, Broward is so far away. It's 35 minutes away. Like eventually some of my characters go north of that great chasm. And the second you cross it, it's just like a frozen wasteland. It's not like it's not like Broward and Palm Beach and then the rest of Florida. No, it's just like there's nothing. There's a tundra. Created this world and I populated with all sorts of different gods and goddesses. So like the god of Chisme is Achepe and the god, you know, the creator god, his name is Pachango. He wakes up on the divine ping pong boom at the beginning of the universe. And his first word is literally coño, followed by que frío. And then <laughs> makes, that was my grandfather's first words, I think. <laughs> it's the holiest of all words. So, you know, that's his first word in creation. So the sun rises above the horizon and, and he's like, que maravilla. You know, I'm going to make a universe. I can't wait, whatever. And then his mother bursts down the celestial door of the universe and says, like, I don't own the electricity company. Turn off that light. Bachang was like, but I'm trying to create the universe. She's like, I don't give a crap. And she like takes off her sandal, her chancleta, ready to beat him. So. He has to turn off the sun, move to a different universe, start it all over again. So that's how it starts. The first half of the book, there's like these standalone myths. So like, how were the sun and the moon created? How did people come to Miami? And there are kingdoms that are established within Miami that are derived from the different communities here. And they're literally like kingdoms with walls and, and completely separate from each other because Miami is more of a salad bowl than a melting pot, really. And then so the second half is... The Cafecito Odyssey, where the hero twins, Marta and Cupita, both of whom are named after my grandmothers, have to go around the different kingdoms of Miami to, to put together different constituent parts of Cafecito because a malaise has settled on the city and no one can do anything. And Cafecito is the thing that will espabilar everybody. And so, yeah, that's, that's the book. I wanted to, to publish the book. I went, this is a different story, but like I went to a bunch of publishers and went through a lot of trouble and eventually I was like, you know what, I'm just going to publish it myself. So part of that <laughs> for the last four years has been creating all these memes and all these stories that you've seen on Instagram and on Facebook that are derived from Miami, derived from draw along upon my Cuban American heritage, but I also try to represent different communities here and celebrate my community. And I celebrate my city 
but I have absolutely no problem pointing out the nastier sides of our culture and our outlook, specifically racism, misogyny, classism, things like that which are rampant, unfortunately. We immediately connected with you when we first started to reach out and and chat. Based off of this idea of this love-hate Miami relationship where you you leave and then you miss it and then you come back and you're like, oh my God, this is a cesspool. And then you also like can't leave. And then, so you, you really understand that very delicate line. And so tell us how you got there and how that maybe led you to write Miami Creation Myth. I've been writing satire for a long, long time. And I would do a lot of political satire well before I started Miami Creation Myth. So that's always been in my, I don't know, in my bloodstream, I guess. Like every time I try to write anything, it turns into satire. Like I can't help myself. I just have to do it. So in terms of my perspective on Miami, I, I think anyone who's lived here any meaningful amount of time knows that this is a city absolutely full of contradictions. And the people who live here can hold these two outwardly disparate beliefs or perspectives on the city at the same time. On one side, like I adore Miami, like absolutely adore this city. I love the nature. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the food. I feel at home here. I've lived in many different cities. So I've lived in Boston and DC and New York and Sao Paulo and Buenos Aires. And Miami is the only place in the world that I feel comfortable, that I feel like I can be myself, that I don't need to explain myself to anyone. So there's that side of it, right? And then there's a side of it that's like, I am so incredibly frustrated with Miami all the time. I am very disappointed with Miami, with our, I guess, our political class and our lack of civic engagement. And then there's everyday things like the traffic is insane. And just especially within the Latino community, there's a lot of just over racism and sexism and every ism and every sense of bigotry everywhere. I've seen it in my own family, right? My, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, whatever, as well as my friends, the people I grew up with and just people on the street. Like, so it's, it's everywhere and it's really disappointing. And I feel like Miami could be much, much, much better and much better structured for the people that live here. And I'm very, very frustrated with the fact that it seems that the powers that be are always concerned with meeting the needs or the expectations of outsiders who come here. And I say this as a son of refugees, right? But like people who swoop in and form their own little enclaves, the professional classes in downtown and Brickell that don't know a goddamn thing about the city and certainly don't care. And, you know, they, they pander to those individuals and they don't give a flying fuck about everybody else living South or North or West. It's all about people living East. So I hold those two at the same time. And that's what drives a lot of the, the work that I do creatively. Mm-hmm. You know, two weeks ago, I wrote another piece called Non-Racist Latino Doesn't Want His Daughter to Date a Black Man. Oh, I, I read that article. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it was a 500-word run-on sentence. It was beautiful. In it, typical it father was, fashion. Typical father fashion. It was very recognizable in terms of the kinds of so quote unquote concerns that came about. You said a couple of things around outsiders, the kinds of interests that exist in, in let's say, like the wealthier classes in Miami versus everyone else. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your take on what's going on in Miami right now, because we know that there's been a lot of movement around tech bros coming from California. It's a continuation of what's been happening for decades. It's accelerated to an extent. And yeah, I do I do shit on Miami tech a lot, but it's because it's an easy target, to be perfectly honest. 
a lot of the people that come in from outside or these tech bros from California or New York that are completely clueless. But to be perfectly honest, it's no different than the other professional sectors here in Miami. So whether it's finance or law or business consulting or whatever, the people that tend to come in to these sectors will form their own little enclaves and completely isolate themselves from the rest of Miami. And I can't tell you how many times I've been to, God forbid, a tech conference or like a chamber of commerce event or a networking function where I'm literally the only Miami there and mm. almost certainly the only Latino there. And as soon as I tell people that they lose their freaking minds, they're like, oh my God, you're from Miami. I didn't know, you know, you people existed. And to <laughs> me, what that tells me is that you are terrified of minorities. So, you know, that's what's infuriating to me. The tech sector is an easy target because it has, I mean, Jesus Christ, it, it is constantly guffawing around the city and the hubris and the just lack of self-awareness are monumental. And again, I don't want to be the guy that polices who gets to call themselves a Miami. You know, my parents are from Cuba. People are constantly coming in from all parts of the world. But if you don't make an effort to learn about the cultures that surround you and the peoples that surround you and their history and actually try to involve yourself in the community outside of your tiny little almost exclusively white professional clique, then you're not a Miami. You happen to reside in Miami. You happen to reside in Brickell, almost certainly, or downtown, <laughs> or maybe Wynwood or Edgewater. Those people, to me, I have no time for them. And I absolutely adore lampooning them. Okay, so yeah, we talked about tech, but what else is happening in Miami? I don't know, at the same time, okay, again, holding these two contradictory feelings at the same time, I see a lot of civic engagement. I see... A lot of people who really care about a whole range of issues from environmental to equal pay to just organizing different communities from Alapata to Little Haiti to Overtown to have their voices heard and to bring them up to the level of <laughs> their political class who tends to ignore them. So I'm very proud of that. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm very well aware of the systemic obstacles placed in their way by the powers that be here. What are the powers that be as you see them, and how did we end up this way? Miami is a very new city. It's you know barely 100 years old. A tremendous percentage of the population isn't from Miami. They're usually you know born outside the country. I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but it is a sizable figure. And you know even more are first generations like myself or yourselves. Miami has always been a boom town a boom and bust town. There's been real estate speculation here forever. There's a long history of uh, shysters and snake oil salesmen <laughs> going around and messing shit up for everybody. And I think that that combined with, I guess, a <laughs> the Latin American flavor of just like, uh, well, you had the massive drug boom that's still ongoing, which is what built our skyline and continues to, to fund all manner of businesses here and individuals. And you also have a sense of the political class is not accountable or does not try to fix the problems of their constituents or just out there for themselves, which I see all the time. So those two kind of very shystery flavors combining to like this real shit ice cream that everybody has to eat here. So, you know, I think that's the history. And then what was the second question? How does it be? Okay, so in Miami-Dade County and the state of Florida, on the municipal level and up to the state level, you do not have full-time legislators or in Miami commissioners, you have part-time. 
and they make a, a stupidly low salary. I think it was like anywhere between 18 to 30 something thousand a year, which means that your average person, like I can't go, I can't run for office. You can't run for office. Your listeners can't run for office because chances are you work a yeah. nine to five and you're a state legislator. You can't take three months off to go work in Tallahassee full time and then come back. You can't be a commissioner because again, unless you are independently wealthy and you can sustain or you own your own business and you can set your own hours, you can't run for office here. It's impossible. You can't live like that. Yeah. Result, who runs for office? The wealthy. Exactly. Of course. The wealthy and the extremely well-connected. And what do they do? They bounce around from position to position. You're a commissioner, you're a mayor, you're a fire chief, you go run for state house, you come back. And what do you do? You accumulate pension after pension after pension after pension. And they just stack up. And then you have all of the stuff that's under the table. You have double dealing. Like the, the laws in Florida are extremely lax and the oversight is very loose. So you can have all sorts of conflicts of interest that you can legislate on or you can zone, especially here in Miami-Dade County. Zoning is super important. You can get kickbacks. Our, our elected officials are constantly under investigation for something or other, regardless of what position they're in. People who are actually involved in their community, who came up through maybe community organizing, through grassroots movements, through civic engagement, they can't run and they can't implement any real changes. It's just that very elite moneyed class who circulates and they just keep on moving from one position to the next. And if it's not them, it's their goddamn sons or, you know, their freaking wives or whomever in their family, you know, their sister, their brother, you know, they get in, they just squeak into office and they stay there. That's what's going on in Miami politically. Recently, the mayor of Miami was specifically talking about taking his 401k and Bitcoin and also accepting his salary in in Bitcoin. And I just kept thinking like, like oh my God, know, it's the salary that we're talking about that isn't even significant. Isn't even right. Or he's like, yeah, I'm able to do this because this is not what I use to pay my bills. And I remember like the, it really is that clear. And they're just so blatantly even saying it on on air, just being like, yep, this is how it works. <laughs> yeah. And I know journalists that are actually trying to track down how like how much salary is taking in Bitcoin, not just him, but other individuals. Right. And it's all opaque. It's not public. You're going to have to do like a FOIA request to get it. And it's a real pain in the ass. You said that Miami's a salad bowl and not a melting pot. Well, uh, um, excuse me, Andrew. I grew up being told that Miami was a melting pot. And I grew up being told that Miami was a really diverse place. Our communities are very, very, very divided. Whether it's African-American, Haitian-American, Cuban-American. I mean, within the Latino community, there's more mix, right? But even socioeconomically, right? You know, if you grew mm-hmm. up in Port Gables, chances are you don't hang out with people from Hialeah. No. <laughs> so that's why for me personally, when I wrote this book, it, it was so important to incorporate as many of these voices as possible. So Miami Creation Myth was written in 11 languages and dialects. All the languages of Miami, Haitian Creole, Jamaican Patois, Spanish, English, Portuguese, Hebrew, Miccosuke, everything. And then now that I'm recording the audiobook, our actors are members of these communities who actually helped me rewrite the chapters that I wrote on their community. So for example, for the the chapter that I have on the Everglades and the Seminole tribe, I reached out to, her name is Cheyenne Kippenberger. She was Miss Seminole USA and Miss Indian World. First time ever that yeah. the Seminole was Miss Indian World. 
and she actually helped me rewrite the whole chapter. I don't have a good visibility on seminal culture and history. We incorporated an entire section on the history of the Black Seminoles, which were largely free Black individuals who were escaping from the South and joined the Seminole tribe and fought with them and died with them. And so these individuals are also the ones that are acting in the audiobook. And the same thing with the Haitian American section. You know, I, I reached out to members of the community and everybody who is involved gets a percentage of all the revenue produced from the audiobook in perpetuity. So they are very much like integral to the book, right? Mm -hmm. But that is not how Miami operates. Um, <laughs> like I can't tell, like that is, that is Miami. You can't tell the story of Miami through a Cuban American perspective. Even though we're a large percent of the population, that's not the story of Miami because Bahamians built Miami, for example, in the 19-teens, the 1920s. You have all these different communities that have incorporated themselves into this larger polity and have given so much to our cultural riches here that are completely ignored. So, you know, whether it's the building of I-95 straight through Overtown, I mean, like right through it and just demolished an affluent African-American community here, that is absolutely integral to telling the story of Miami or, you know, the story of, of undocumented immigrants that are uh, picking your fruits and vegetables out in Homestead. That is absolutely part of Miami. If it weren't for them, you wouldn't have anything to eat here. Their stories aren't told because they're relegated to the margins. And the powers that be here in Miami, and I tell this in the, in the, this, the third chapter, which is how people came to Miami, essentially. Cubans showed up, and then behind them came all these different waves of Latinos, Nicaragüenses, uh, Venezuelans, Colombians, Mexicans, Brazilians later. Argentines, and scared the shit out of the white people. White people moved north into Broward, West Palm Beach, got the hell out of Dodge. And then the Latinos, spearheaded by the Cubans, moved right into their position. It was like, again, drawing upon Latin American history, the very top of the socioeconomic pyramid pre-independence from Spain, you had the Peninsulares, which are the Spaniards from Spain. Then underneath them, you had Criollos, and then, you know, you got sequentially more and more racist. You know, you had mulatos, mm -hmm. mestizos. The Spanish caste system. Exactly. Yeah. So we did that here. The Cubans showed up. The Latinos showed up. The white people left, you know, just like in Latin America after independence. The Peninsulares left, and the Criollos whoop, put themselves right at the top. That's what we did here. And the rest of the pyramid is still there. And it is completely segmented out it's completely isolated from each other and in order to make meaningful connections with other communities you know you have to do this crazy thing which is reach out <laughs> and make yourself vulnerable who's doing a good job of this are there any like stories that will make us feel proud of miami there's a lot to celebrate in miami there's nothing like this place in the world our art our architecture just like If you as a tourist go to, I don't know, Bayfront and to Wynwood and to Miami Beach, South Beach specifically, you'll think that Miami, oh God, what a vacuous, superficial city. There's nothing here of substance. That is bullshit. Go west, like go anywhere else that isn't, you know, along the coastline. I'm very, very proud of my Cuban culture and the larger Latino culture that I'm embedded in. And all these other cultures that are our neighbors, we don't really talk to. <laughs> like, again, getting some insight into the Seminole tribe has been fantastic, was incredible. They're the only, the Seminole tribe of Florida, mind you, mm -hmm. the only Native American tribe that was never conquered. 
by the United States military. They still did not sign any peace treaty <laughs> and is incredible history. And same, you know, same thing goes with the Haitian American community. Same thing goes with the Brazilian American community. You know, just go into someone's house, go to a house party. It's amazing. Like people are dancing, like the food is incredible. The conversation is, is fantastic. And that's what I missed when I lived in Boston and lived in those frigid, frigid locales of both culturally and physically. I'm very, very proud of our cultural mosaic here and all the different patches that compose it. I'm thinking, Andrew, about your environmental work and about like the landscape of Miami. Our physical infrastructure is horrendous in the city. And it's not just the obvious things like public transportation. If everyone's taking public transportation, like you do in New York, <laughs> like it doesn't matter who you are in New York, like you're taking the subway. But also when it comes to just the physical infrastructure of our sidewalks, for example, Miami is a very hot city eight months out of the year. And our sidewalks don't have any shade trees, which means that it walking anywhere is completely out of the question. Nobody will walk. It is killer. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous because we don't have protected sidewalks. They're not protected by medians. So any car that veers slightly off out of the lane, which happens all the time in the city because no one here can drive, that puts you in danger. So that means people don't get out and into different neighborhoods and meet different people. Switching to environmentalism or the environment in general, to give your listeners a bit of a background, I have dedicated the last, I think, four years to removing 15,200 pounds of trash from our coastal ecosystems. So that's mostly the mangroves, but it's also the ocean floor. I've always loved our natural landscape here. And it is unfortunately a part of Miami that a lot of Miamis aren't exposed to and that they don't know very much about for a variety of reasons. We're literally surrounded by incredible natural beauty, whether it's Biscayne Bay National Park, which is you have everything from coral reefs to seagrass beds, to mangroves, and, and all these tidal ecosystems, to the Everglades or West, which are a globally unique ecosystem. They are incredible. Just don't go in their summer because you're going to hate yourself. So in 2019, I walked the Miami Marathon carrying 35 pounds of mangrove trash, and it was awful. And I do not suggest that anybody ever do that. It was horrible. <laughs> we partnered with Miami Waterkeeper to help use that to raise funds for them and to you know, get visibility on this issue. And then the next year in 2020, I came back with a team of people that pulled this trash cart, 135 pounds of trash along the entire Miami Marathon. We got a front page story in the Herald and in, in Nova Herald too. So it was great. We raised over $30,000 for Miami Waterkeeper. But my point being is that once you show people the magnitude of the problem, they get it like immediately. It's not political. It doesn't break down by party or by community. They're just like, wow, this is awful. We need to do something about it. And I've definitely seen a growing sense of this is an issue that really needs to be fixed and more and more pressure being built. The Everglades is our backyard, but you have to go there in order to see it. It is not a winding natural landscape that is interspersed between our, our suburbs, but rather we're like encroaching on it. And when we encroach on it, we turn it into cemented suburbs. Isn't it such a typical Miami thing to go somewhere in the suburbs? It's really close to the Everglades and you see like iguanas and you see a bunch of animals because you just took over their natural landscape. I mean, um, yeah, it's like, I woke up in the morning to a few crocodiles in my pool here and there. Yeah. 
It's crazy because they keep like expanding the urban boundary line and every time you think like they can't build anymore, they keep building. Back in 20, what was it? 20 like... 11 or 2010 around there I worked with this photographer who was a Dutch photographer working on a piece about climate change and so we end up at Harvey Rubin's office the clerk of city courts and because apparently at the time he was one of the only people who were doing anything about climate change and by that I mean he put together a task force which met like once a year and like drank so In this man's office, I saw a photo that had been framed from Miami Beach. It was kind of like an aerial photo and you could see the beach down below and it had like five hotels and it was like from 1961 or something like that, like really early. And the beach, the actual island was so much thinner on the map than it used to be. And apparently a lot of the beach has been dredged up sand from offshore and brought back in to build the beach. Yeah, so much of Miami, a lot of it is kind of like what my mom would call like Mickey Mouse, right? It's just kind of like this idea that you just force something to happen and it's not really that high quality. And even if it was, it's going to fall apart anyway because you're constantly fighting nature. People don't realize that. Miami was wild. The majority of Miami Beach is actually built on these giant pylons. Like, think giant, like tree trunks, essentially, that were, <laughs> that were hammered into the bay. And then they were filled with dredged up muck from the bay when they were building all these different cuts going into the port of Miami. So Miami Beach used to be connected to Fisher Island. It was one continuous island, which was itself connected to Virginia Key, which was connected to Key Biscayne. It was one long barrier island. The water table has changed a lot, but it used to be that you had these, the Spaniards um, would stop by in Miami to get fresh water and they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even have to land. There was these, there were the upwellings, these massive upwellings of fresh water that would come directly out, like hundreds of meters out into the ocean that they could just like put their casks in and get fresh water out of. And the Miami River had rapids back in the day. So the, the Grove used to have these limestone cliffs Mm-hmm. That you could, they would be like 20, 25 feet tall that you could jump directly into the bay, into the water. And then what they did was they built the these mansions on top of those <laughs> cliffs and then filled in all the bay in front of those mansions. I heard this story about like one family that was just south of the Miami River. Their daughter fell in love with a guy whose family was just north of the Miami River. And the families were like, no, 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 you're too far away. <laughs> that's long distance. We don't do that. Yo, that's like New York dating. I'd be in Brooklyn and I'd be like, I'm sorry, what? You live in Queens? We can't do this. No. <laughs> Miami and what we think of as Florida is just like one flat. It's actually so incredibly boring to yeah, see. Yeah, compared. To see that compared to like something like cliffs, rapid, anything that deviated at all, it seems was just like filled in or worked into something more palatable. This is why uh, we can't have nice things. This is why we yeah. can't have nice things. So, so the way Southern Florida is built is it's kind of like a bowl. All along the perimeter, you have what's called the coastal ridge. And that's what our cities are built on. That's what Miami's built on. That's what Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, et cetera. They're all built on these limestone ridges. And in the middle, you have the Everglades, which is the bottom of the bowl. It's a river of grass. It's an incredible, like, southern flowing river that's, I think it's like 150 miles wide, all flowing south. And then you don't really get real elevation, so you get past, like, Okeechobee up into Orlando and Lake County, and then you have actual hills. But, um, yeah, this whole system, right, has been massively fucked up. So, first of all, the water that feeds into the Everglades comes from 
just north of Lake Okeechobee, the Kissimmee River, all these different lakes that are up there, literally hundreds of lakes. And that's all flows into Lake Okeechobee. And there it gets messed up by fertilizers, by herbicides, by pesticides. It's terrible, primarily from the agricultural sector, sugarcane specifically. And that's why you get these massive algae flows every spring, summer, when the lake overflows and they, they just let all this water out onto the east and west coast. And that just, it, everything dies <laughs> and you have massive red and green algae that goes all around the state and kills everything. Um, so you have all that collecting there and guess where that goes? It goes into the Everglades. And then we built all these roads across the Everglades, Tamiami Trail, I-75, and all of these canals that redirect the water out into the ocean so the southern glades don't get the water that they need. And you get way too much water up north and they're dying as a result. You have widespread die-offs down there. And the whole ecosystem is built on that flow of water, which we have completely interrupted. Do any of these details make their way into Miami creation myth? Oh yeah, absolutely. I haven't written it yet. This is gonna be there's this is the first of three books that I plan to write. But the third book is gonna be the apocalypse. It's going to be, the, you know, every mythic cycle has to, you know, the Norse had their Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Yes. There has to be the end of times. We have like a Chupacabra or something. I don't know. <laughs> we, I, did Dude, I incorporate Chupacabra? No, not yet. They'll be in there. There, you got to put was, it on the list. You, you need to incorporate the great Chupacabra scare of 1995. Okay? I did because, that absolutely. Like, story. Listen, did that those okay. images from Primer Impacto still haunt Terrifying. Me. Y al Rojo Vivo, like all of those things where they were just like, spotted chupacabra like on this corner <laughs> like i was like a goat dead <laughs> funny you should mention that beginning of the pandemic i wrote a story that talked about how like now that everyone's quarantined and the streets are empty that's where all of miami's mythic animals come out and interact with each other so there's like a pack of chupacabras and then i drew upon all these you know pack of chupacabras, not yeah. just one they have a whole family they grew up and got married <laughs> i always thought it was just one chupacabra like just like one animal that no, was doing Frida. all of that in Puerto Rico and Latin America that and then like, just going, like Santa Claus a, a nice little chupacabra pier and now they have a little chupacabra family and yeah they have a little pack you know what it's been a while from now yeah, <laughs> yeah like, so like 20 years I, I yeah. drew upon all these mythic creatures from from all these Caribbean traditions and just jammed them into downtown Miami when everybody was home Again, all these things that you would recognize, El Coco was there, Madre de Aguas was there, which is like more Dominican. They got incorporated. They'll make a showing. But anyway, back to my point. Yes, the end of times of the apocalypse. It'll basically be climate change is how everything's going to end. In the first chapter of the book, the gods, Pachanga the Creator creates uh, Marislacis, the goddess of the everything, <laughs> Yamilet. Yeah, I knew you'd appreciate that. Yamilet, the goddess of the sky. Junior, the god of the earth. And Yusiel, the god of the ocean. Yusiel. Oh my gosh. And then Achepe comes in and spreads rumors and they all start fighting each other. And it just ruins the harmony of the universe. These are generación Y. (laughs) Yes. There's this enmity between the different gods, between the goddess of the sky and the ocean and the Everglades and are constantly at war with each other. And Junior, the god of the earth, is stuck in the middle and he's trying to keep them apart. Eventually they're going to win out and they're just going to go to war with each other and that'll destroy Miami. So, you know... No spoilers. Spoiler alert. The apocalypse will be Miami's <laughs> underwater. <laughs> and, and the mayor, like, basically creating his own little Noah's Ark with Bitcoin. Where can people read? Yeah, where is this book? Carmen, you go to MiamiCreationMyth.com, of course. Not only will you find 
all of my ridiculous stories on there. Um, but you'll also find the first free chapter of the book, which is how the universe was created. And so right now, we are just finishing up the narration of my immigration, the audiobook, and we started to record the different actors in studio. Once the audiobook is done, then we're going to put everything out on a Kickstarter the audiobook, the physical book, and an ebook. And that's when people will be able to get the whole book. Do you see it being one of those things that can be like a living text, right? Like it gets updated so often? I'm really glad that you asked that question. So the the next stage in this process is to put out the book, right? The following stage after that is to put out, like to add Foley effects and to add more production value into the audio and put it out as a podcast. <laughs> then after that, we would take that audio and we'd create an animated TV series pilot for Miami Creation Myth. And then, and then we would pitch that to streaming services. Very cool. But that is not the ultimate stage. I want to ultimately create kind of like an open online universe where anyone can take any aspect of Miami Creation Myth and write their own stories. And if, you know, create their own gods, you know, trash the whole concept if they want, like, you know, my own canon and made their own with their own gods, their own goddesses, their own sources for everything. So that it is very much so a living, breathing universe that is constantly changing, that has different aspects from different communities that doesn't have one canon. That's what I want it to ultimately be. I love that. It's a salad. <laughs> well, hopefully it gives people a framework in order to tell their own stories, but also to it will give people the opportunity to read the perspectives of different communities in the city and how they perceive their place within it. I think that's lovely. Yeah. So, Andrew, at the end of every episode, we come out with a Cubanismo. And so do you have a Cubanismo or a Miamiismo that you can share with us? I'll tell you one of my favorite Cubanismos. Voló como Matias Pérez, which... <laughs> which means that someone just disappeared and you never saw them again. So like, you know, fell off the face of the map. And the origin of this is that there was a Portuguese balloonist in Cuba in the 19th century who brought his hot air balloon to Cuba and went up and, you know, <laughs> took off from a skinny little island in the middle of the Caribbean and got blown off into the Atlantic and nobody ever saw him again. His name was Matias Perez. And the reason why I like this is because Cubans cannot let go of stupidity. If someone's stupid, they are going to shit on you for the rest of your life. And like literally 150 years later, people are still talking shit about Matias Perez. Cubans definitely have a way of creating stories around anything that you do. Like you did one thing once. Never live that's it down. It. Yeah, never, never ever, live ever, it down. Ever, ever. Never. never ever Several generations down. later, we're still talking shit about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So voló como Matías Pérez basically translates to flew away like Matías Pérez, the guy that flew away, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Never seen it ever again. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing this story and also your approach to storytelling and your understanding of Miami with us. Yes, thank you so much. This has been so fun. We are all in Miami right now and it's really awesome. We're going to go have a great time after this, you know, before the apocalypse hits, you know, just take obviously. It easy. <laughs> <laughs> take it easy. <laughs> thank you all for joining us in this really fun episode. Special thanks to our patrons, Carolina, Lauren, Gianni, Vidal, Christine, Dee, Derek, Ryan, Jose, Susan, Salia. 
Catherine, Lauren, Kaylee, Amaudi, Kristen, Sarah, Karina, Jason, Josh, Yvette, Kellis, and Jesse. You are amazing. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We are at Take It Easy Pod. Go to our website, takeitisipod.com. We have a merch store on our website, an NFT, Cafe Con Crypto, on OpenSea, and we go live on Instagram every other week. Thank you so much, everyone, and take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.